0: In our world, in the adult world, right, what what we see all the time is you're not really a good investor unless you do XYZ buy this ridiculous security. Right? You're not really a good citizen. You're not really a good Democrat or a good Republican unless you give money to this ridiculous candidate or vote for this ridiculous candidate. Right? Once you start looking for those kind of grammars that are that are really insults you know what are you you know a libtard or you know what are you you know a, a, a trump lover right that type of grammatical structure we see that that inserted into the dna of more and more messages today and it's something that we as human beings we respond to imagine
1: spending an hour with the world's greatest traders
2: A new regime has emerged, perhaps even a new world order, and in our global macro series, I, along with my co-host, Jim Kassan, want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent thought leaders to help us try to better understand what this new global macro-driven world looks like. We want to explore the processes they follow and hopefully dig out nuances to their work in places that others may have missed. And we want to share our journey with you. Our guest today is one of the most sought-out people when it comes to understanding the narratives that drives us irrational people. And we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Ben Hunt to the show. Ben, thank you so much for joining Jem and I today for what I'm sure will be a very insightful conversation uh, as part of our global macro series. We uh, really have been looking forward to this chance of discussing some of the big picture topics that are playing out in the world right now and how they are likely to impact all of us and how we should best prepare for what's coming, something that you and Rossi so elegantly write about over at Epsilon Theory. Now, Since this is your first time on our podcast, perhaps I could ask you to set the stage and provide a little bit of context for our conversation by telling us a bit of your background and what led you to create Epsilon Theory, and perhaps also what Epsilon Theory means to you. Well, I'd be happy to, and uh, first of all, let me say I'm so
0: delighted to be uh, on your 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 broadcast here. So so thank you, Niels. Thank You're you welcome. Jim really really appreciate it. Yeah, you know uh, I'll start with the name, epsilon theory. it's it comes from the the core econometric formula for portfolios, you know for modern portfolio theory. you know what what are the returns that you get? Well, you've got alpha, which is, and I'll kind of use layman's terms here, right? It's kind of that that idiosyncratic, Uh, element of your return profile. Uh, You've got beta, which is essentially the returns you're getting from going along with, you know, the market, other asset classes. And that's all people usually think about that, but but when you look at any of these econometric formulas, there's there's always one more term that's tacked on at the end. And it's plus epsilon. So so epsilon, you know, it's E for error. It's the it's the fudge factor, it's the error term in every econometric formula. And, you know, I wanted to name our project, and that's really how I think about it, is a project, Epsilon Theory, because we actually do have a theory about epsilon, that it's not error, uh, that there are you know by by error we mean something that's you know non systematic it's essentially a, a a stochastic or a random element of whatever it is you're trying to analyze and it struck me that everything that falls under the heading you know I use this term behavioral but I, I i don't mean behavioral in this idiosyncratic kind of random ask, oh, aren't those humans silly, you know, the way they, they, they make their decisions. No, I, I think there are really structural elements that impact social behavior, <laughs> you know, that goes under the phrase game theory. And I, I, I think that all of that, the way that we as human beings systematically respond in particular to unstructured data, the things we hear, the things we read, right, to narratives, as we, as we write about here, you know, it's not random, it's not error, it's not part of the stochastic term. There's real signal buried in that epsilon term that has nothing to do with the so-called, you know, the fundamentals, you know, that you would be basing your alpha on or the, the, the beta on, right? There's something else. And so that was, you know, a long-winded introduction, but that's why we call it epsilon theory. It's really trying to unpack that Epsilon term and look at these, uh, again, I'll call them game theoretic social elements that are as real as, you know, any sort of, you know, EBITDA multiple or, you know, management style or
2: balance sheet analysis. That's where Epsilon theory comes from. Yeah. No, very cool. I think it's very helpful for people to to understand that. And I don't want to dwell too much about your background anyways, because actually, I think there are so many topics that Jim and I have prepared that we <laughs> we uh, we really want to get going. Um, and of course, you mentioned the word narrative, and it is definitely the first uh, kind of major topic that we wanted to dig into and, and hopefully dig in uh, on a little bit of a deeper level, um, because it is close to your heart, and it's something that, uh, as you say, it, a lot of people, it's um, probably not understood at all the importance of this. So so my first, if I can kick it off just, is really just, you know, when did narrative, in your opinion, start to become kind of a dominant in the news flow? Because I think uh, for many people, um, they may not have realized the power of narrative mm-hmm. until during the recent COVID crisis, where we kind of started to question what is real, what is fake, and where you get this uh, feeling that whoever is running... A particular topic, whether it's a virus or inflation or conflict in Europe, they might think that we, the people, we just can't handle the truth.
0: <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Well, you know, actually, this is kind of a good element to say, you know, I, I, I have been studying narrative for a professional career, 35 years. You know, I started it in uh, academia, so I got my PhD at Harvard. I was a political scientist of all oxymorons for, for, for 10 years. And there I was looking at the role of narrative in a political context uh, you know what what do governments say to people and how do they say it uh, and is there a signal there you know again unpacking that epsilon mm. theory and from there you know I've you know I started a couple of technology companies then I got into the the, the hedge fund world uh, and so I've been been dealing in markets now really for the past gosh you know time flies you know 17 18 years. But it's all the same thing. It 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 is all trying to understand how we humans are hardwired, and I mean that very literally, neurally hardwired, to respond to unstructured data that's put forward in a certain way. And you no, know, you're quick the quick answer to your question is, you know, when did this start? You know, it started with the advent of, of language and right. politics, storytelling, you know, th- th- thousands and thousands of years yeah. ago. So th- that is what I mean about, you know, there is a physical basis, a neural basis to how we the human animal is hardwired to respond to these messages that we, that, that we hear. In fact, you know, it's the success of our species, Again, I, I mean this in a in a in a very physical, scientific, literal sense. The the human species is technically a social animal, and like bees, like termites, like ants, and it's no it's no coincidence, right, that four of the most successful species on earth are technically social animals. And there are you know there are four or five characteristics of what it means to be a social animal, but the most important for our Consideration is that any social animal is immersed in intraspecies communication, and it is the water in which we swim. All right. So this, you know, it's the old David Foster Wallace story you did it in a graduation address where, you know, these two little fish or, or young fish are swimming along in the pond. They pass an, an older fish. The older fish says, "Yeah, morning, boys. How's the water?" And the young fish go, "Yeah, whatever, Gramps. <laughs> yeah, it's great." and then they keep swimming on and then one of the young fish looks to the other and says well what the hell is water <laughs> <laughs> so, so that that is what unstructured data that's what narrative is it's the water in which we swim so when you when you when you ask Niels, you know when do people realize it it's it's there has been i think a dramatic increase in what i would, what i like to describe as the weaponization of narrative mm. uh, the intentional and it it's weaponized in the same way that you would weaponize a virus. I mean, it's exactly the sort of gain-of-function work that you would want to do on a virus. You can do on a narrative, except you're looking at grammatical structures rather than uh, you know a DNA or an RNA structure. So when we think about narratives, we really are thinking about it in these structural terms. And we're trying to analyze exactly the way you'd analyze you know, the DNA of a microorganism. What is the DNA? What is the, the, the structure of a narrative? The reason that we're all kind of seeing the water in which we swim a little more clearly today, I think, is threefold. First, everyone's in on the act. right? So, So the construction of narrative, the intentional weaponization of narrative used to be something that was pretty much limited to politicians and to uh, advertising people. <laughs> those were the two areas where these, these, the, the intentional weaponization shifting of grammatical structures to hit us, hit us neurally. it was pretty limit, limited to those, those two areas. And that's been going on, like, say, for thousands of years. Mm. Today, everyone's in on the act. I think one of the real drivers of that was the, the great financial crisis, 2008 where central bankers decided to take on narrative weaponization, you know, forward guidance, communication policy. And it was incredibly effective, just incredibly effective beyond their wildest dreams. And that's what Bernanke says now is that, wow, you know, we, you know, we went through all our toolkit stuff, whether it was, you know, short-term interest rates, whether it's Balance sheet uh, operations, you know QE and the like. but the thing that really did everything for us was forward guidance and and using our words not as a true reflection of what we think, but using our words to try to create a behavioral response in investors. So you've got that everyone's in on the act so every every CEO understands now that the the, the way for success is not operational. Uh, you know, getting another turn of leverage or some sort of operational improvement is, can I create a narrative? Can I create a story that'll give me a better multiple on my stock, right? Every CEO's in on this, right? Every central banker's in on this. Every politician's in on this. Everyone gets the joke now, right, that you've got to create the narrative. That's one. Two is structural developments in technology and media practices, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, and I know we're we're, we're broadcasting this, but I'm holding up my dopamine machine, my smartphone for, for our little camera here. Uh, you know, we have an always-on device that we willingly carry around with ourselves that broadcasts these messages to us 24-7. I'm addicted to it. I think most of the people who are going to listen to this are, are again, clinically, <laughs> biologically addicted to this third is the development like say of uh, of of media practices in, in particular i mean the development of 24/7 always on and here i'm making little quote signs in air news channels whether that's political news you know cnn fox msnbc or um, business news bloomberg uh, cnbc all the you know the competitors here 24/7 delivery of quote unquote news There's not a news to fill that content. So what fills it? Well, it's filled by, I like to call it fiat news. It's opinion presented as news. It's opinion presented as news. And this is true for, again, all the political shows, all the the market shows. So the result of all this, Niels, then when you combine that with a real world event like COVID with (laughs) millions of people around the world being killed by this disease and governments going from pillar to post on policy and you know and and their nudge the, again the creation of narrative to try to influence behavior we start to see the water in which we swim that's what's happening niels and it's uh, it's a struggle for for i believe it's the struggle of our lives because on the one hand we have like I say everyone's in on the act Our technology and our media systems are, and these are bells you can't unring, are going in a direction that allows for the more effective weaponization and distribution of these viruses that are narratives. Uh, And at the same time, though, and this is the great hope we have, I think that people are waking up that this is the water in which we swim and how can we protect ourselves.
2: Yeah, and I guess also there's the danger that, for example, if a policymaker like a central bank has a certain narrative that they are obviously putting forward, as as you rightly said, I guess you also have the danger at some point it's going to be the narrative driving the policy because they can't get – you know, they can't do something that doesn't – is not supported within their own narrative. They create kind of a trap for themselves to some extent, especially if they need to – pivot from one from one narrative to another um so there there are danger signs all over i imagine
0: yeah look I, it's i used to be i'll use a phrase again from, from from economics you know i i used to be a weak form narrativist <laughs> and meaning that oh you know you know narratives are important kind of in the short term but you know in the long term it's the real world and its fundamentals that drive the ship right that 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 carry the day and then I became a semi-strong form narrativist uh meaning that well you know what those narratives well they can they can you know make an influence for longer than i thought but i'm sure that fundamentals and the real world will eventually you know carry through i got to tell you Niels, at, at this point i am now a strong form narrativist i think it's narratives all the way down i i i i am i've stopped being surprised at the ability for real world to be Shaped by narrative construction and weaponization, as described earlier. And I've come now just to uh, to to think that that is, in fact, you know, the reality of our lives, that any real world event, our behaviors, will be driven much more by the way we interpret that. And our interpretation is, again, I think, biologically impacted by the filters. The, the the narrative filters that we see the real world through, that's what determines our behaviors, not the real world shock or event itself. Ben, I have, uh, yeah. Yeah, I have an interesting kind of add on there.
3: You know, narrative is, is always important, right? How we interact, um, you know, can be for cooperation when it can be for competition, right? And you, yep. you talk about this quite a bit, the flock versus the pack. Um, Etc. And the reality is, technology—we're always advancing technologically. That's more of an accelerant to all of these trends, and always has been, right? So the real question is, what has made us move more towards a nudging state? That that narrative is more uh, geared towards uh, affecting the other person in a way for competitive advantage, right? What has led us more to this um, this nudging, competitive? state. You know, I, obviously yeah. inequality, I think, has played a, a decent role in that. I'd, I'd like to hear kind of your thoughts on what has made us so susceptible to this nudging state and what is forcing us in this
0: direction um, as we move forward. Uh, yeah, it, it's grown and it's become more of an issue because it works. So um, we all think we're largely immune, I think, to being nudged. And the fact of it is, again, we, we are, we're so hardwired that uh, we, we can't help ourselves. And again, this, 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 what I'm describing is a neural, <laughs> you know, uh, strength and Achilles heel for the human animal. What I think is happening is that uh, there are two, I believe, I'll call them grammars, of narrative, so you know, two weaponization programs, if you will, uh, that that I think have grown enormously over the past, well, certainly over the last ten years, but but even in just in the last four or five years, we can see a real increase in the use of these two narrative grammars. And, and they, again, I, I really do mean it's like the weaponization of a of, of a virus and the the intentional insertion of certain phrases and uh, uh, ways of organizing a thought, you know, it's what, it's what Socrates would have called, you know, sophistry, right? So, so you know, you're asking, you know, why are we so susceptible to it? We've always been susceptible to it. But what's changed today, and I really is, believe is the big driver, is the carrying around of our little dopamine machines mm-hmm. uh, that we willingly take in these messages now 24-7. It's the last thing I look at when I go to bed. It's the first thing I will look at in the morning. I can't be more than 30 seconds without looking at the little machine, that 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 gives these messages to me. So, you know, what are these two kind of grammars that I think have really now crowd out so much of our other thoughts so that we are, again, biologically moved towards uh, behaviors that are amenable to the nudgers, whether that's a company, whether that's a government, whatever the nudger might be, right? And the the, the two narrative grammars, I think, are most important here. One I'll call is tribal, and the other I'll call is transactional. So when you kind of break down the messages that we are immersed in on a day-to-day basis, what we find is that so many of the messages, again, that we willingly take on, fall into one of these two grammars, tribal or transactional. the, The transactional narratives, I think, are uh, you know, more straightforward. They're basically people asking you for a transaction, right? So, you know, give us money, right? Give us your vote. Uh, and what what the sophistication of these transactional narratives, though, is that many of them are now geared towards what's called a what we call a, a negging grammar. Yeah, negging is um, is uh, you know something that I didn't know until one of my you know tweenage daughters you know taught me about this. But when you nag somebody, you insult them. Uh, but you insult them in a way to that that could be interpreted as a compliment if you do the transaction that the negging person is 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 asking for. So you know, it could be you know you'd look pretty if you cut your hair, <laughs> right? That's kind of the classic tween version of 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 a neg. In our world, in the adult world, right, what what we see all the time is you're not really a good investor unless you do XYZ buy this ridiculous security. Right? You're not really a good citizen. You're not really a good Democrat or a good Republican unless you give money to this ridiculous candidate or vote for this ridiculous candidate. Right? Once you start looking for those kind of grammars that are that are really insults. You know, what are you? You know, a libtard or, you know, what are you? You know, a, a, a Trump lover, right? That type of grammatical structure, we see that, that inserted into the DNA of more and more messages today. And it's something that we as human beings, we respond to. Uh, we respond very heavily. Now, now, you know, sometimes it's an insult. Sometimes it's just, oh, I'm going to pay attention to you right that that's that, that that's part of this transaction i'll pay attention to you if you like my tweet or if you you know give money to this or you vote for that right these are all versions of the theme the transactional narratives and once you start looking for it it's the water in which we swim let me just describe briefly the tribal narratives that 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 you see all the time now there are two variations on this theme right the one that we write a lot about is what we call a a mirroring tribal narrative. And what that is basically asking you is to look at yourself as a crowd, right? Not to look at your own opinion, but to look at the crowd that is gathered here, whether that's looking at a TV show, whether that's listening to someone speak, it's a focus on the crowd watching the crowd. So quick example, any Donald Trump speech, because he's a master at this, he's really good at this, right? So in every Donald Trump speech, one of the first things he'll say at the beginning of the speech is he will call the attention of the crowd to the crowd itself. Oh man, it's the biggest crowd that's ever been in this auditorium. We had a mile, three miles long looking to get in here, right? It's entirely intentional in the middle of his speech. He will stop whatever he's doing. And he will again, call attention of the crowd to the crowd itself. Oh, I wonder if my, yeah, it's the same thing. And at the end, it's the last thing he says, he calls attention of the crowd to the crowd itself. Again, entirely intentional, And we are hardwired then to respond. It's very rational to respond as if we actually believe what the crowd is hearing. It's called common knowledge. It's the creation of common knowledge. And it's based on forcing the crowd to look at itself as the entity, not you as the individual, but think of yourself as part of a crowd. So that's one of these tribal narratives. And again, once once you start looking for it, or the New York Times will say, "Experts say," right? You know, so you're part of the crowd that is now listening to the expert tell you what truth with a capital T is. Right? So all of those kind of of grammatical constructions are intentionally done and designed within this this, this tribal narrative. The other kind of tribal narrative is we'll call it a, not mirroring but othering, right? And that's the more kind of traditional one where. You create the other with a capital O, and you have a structure where you have a, a set of, of beliefs or statements that, you know, any reasonable person could say, but then you, you use that as basically your shield by which you increasingly do more and more, you know, aggressively, well, aggressively aggressive, right? So says more and more, you know, untruthful statements about the other side, which as you go forward, ends up being a disobedience collar you know, for anybody who's, who's part of that. So again, what I'm saying is this is all intentionally done. It's all the weaponization of narratives. You see it in uh, politics. Certainly you also see it in markets all the time and it it crowds out. It crowds out everything. Jim, you know, to your question, you know, why is it happening so much now? It's because it works. We willingly take it on and um, you know, it's, it, it, it is truly our world. Why do you think it's leading more to competition than
3: cooperation? I guess.
0: Mm, yeah, great, great question. So it's become a joke, right? Uh, and I say, you know, let's look at the game theory, mm-hmm. right? And and it's really, I I don't tell people anymore. But that that was my PhD, right? It was in was in <laughs> game theory, right? So it's a it's a thing. It's it that that the word I don't tell people anymore that you know, oh yeah, I've got a game, PhD in game theory because it's become kind of the tagline for a joke. But when you're talking about cooperation and competition, we're talking about game theory. We're talking about what is the again, $10 word alert, you know, the equilibrium of the, the, the payoffs in the situation we've got here. So basically put, right, both the transactional narratives that I'm describing have an equilibrium where, you know, <laughs> you give the message bearer, the missionary as we call it, you make the transaction. Right, that's the equilibrium. On the tribal narratives, what you set up is, uh, you know, other kind of ten-dollar words. Right, it's it's a it's a Pareto suboptimal equilibrium, and 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 all that means is there's this this famous game that Rousseau talked about, you know, 300 years ago. Right, called called the stag hunt, and 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 here's the the, the basis of the game. Right, is that All right, we've we've all got to go out and we've got to go hunt, you know, feed our tribe uh, and or feed our families. And uh, if we cooperate, we can take down a big deer and we can all eat. We'll all eat really well. On the other hand, if even one person goes out and says, "Eh, I'm not going to go out and try to hunt the the big deer. I'm I'm going to bag a rabbit today, right? They'll get the rabbit. And you know they'll eat fine, not as well as if they had a you know chunk of the big stag that they took down, but they'll be fine. But everyone else who went out, you know, trying to hunt for that stag, they got they got nothing. They got neither rabbit nor stag. So it turns out that the everyone gets together and goes out and hunts for the big stag. That is a, an equilibrium, right? It, once you get there, you stay there. You stay there. But once one person defects, once one person gets out. Then the new equilibrium is, oh screw this, I got to go hunt for a rabbit. Everybody hunts for a rabbit, and so this is where we are. It's it's the the it, both of those are equilibria, meaning they're stable. Once you get there, they you stick there. But what we've, I think we've we've had today is this intentional, again, moving towards the 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 rabbit hunting, right? Because if I'm a political entrepreneur, and I'm trying to achieve something break into a system where i'm currently on the outside i don't like that stable stag hunt equilibrium i want to try to break it up and all i have to do to break it up is get one of the players to defect and go hunt for rabbits to 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 do their own thing and then everybody's going to do it so it's, it's stable and what I, and the reason that's important right is this is not a mean reverting phenomenon like we often see in markets Right? It's not like, oh, you know, price goes up, price goes down, but it reverts to some mean. Now, what we mean by an equilibrium is once you get there, you stick. And it creates an enormous external shock to get you out of that equilibrium. And that's where I think we are. So to answer your question more directly, I think it was political and economic entrepreneurs who saw the opportunity, uh, intentionally weaponized narratives to create the other to draw attention to ourselves as a crowd that is in opposition to some other. And you create the, 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 the rabbit-hunting equilibrium. And once you're there, it's perfectly rational. Everybody's got to do it. And then we're stuck.
3: I wonder how much of this is because we simply have more the other, that there's just more inequality, not just inequality based on, on um, socioeconomic, but generationally. Um, we also uh, are divided very much by the baby boomers and the haves and millennials on down and the have-nots. So the more that there is inequality, the more that there is an other, right? I wonder how much easier yeah. it is to divide
0: and more of a comp- competition game it becomes. So I'm going to push back yeah. on you a Love little it. bit there, yeah. Jim. What, what surprises me is that there is not more political conflict around class, around wealth. In the United States. that That's what surprises me, right? Because the, the reality, as you say, is enormous inequality, right? Globally, and we can talk about Gini coefficients and blah, 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 right? But there is no doubt that here in my country, the United States, wealth inequality has dramatically expanded over the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, Right, I mean, basically since 1980, when you look at this stuff, you see you, you see the, the 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 pendulum turn. And what surprises me is there's not more political conflict around class and wealth than there is today. And I think that's largely because right, the narratives are constructed to minimize that class conflict. Neither political party, right? Has any incentive to wage class warfare? Neither one does, right? I, you know, quick example. Why does the carried interest, <laughs> you know, tax loophole persist? Why? Why in the world does that persist? Particularly, you know, in the Democratic, you know, because I'll tell you why. Because it's not hedge fund guys that get the carried interest benefit. It's private equity guys. Right? Who are the major donors to the to the to the DNC? Right, it's venture and and, and and private equity guys. So, you know, don't tell me that the Democrats are on the side of the the the, the little guy. It's it's. Yeah, no, you're right. The, it's all one big club, and we're not the, in it. The narrative, <laughs> though, is
3: strong towards populism. Right to, it's, you know, this is kind of whether it's Trump or Biden or whatever side, the populist rhetoric is. Is at an all time high. It is funny that once they're in power, right, they're using those narratives then to do other things, right? So, so it's, it's,
0: there's absolutely an us versus them. That's that othering, the tribalism. So, so, so the creation of different tribes, right, within countries is, is growing enormously as you're describing. What surprises me is that these tribes are not defined on the basis of class or wealth, but they're defined on, these other social dimensions that cut across class and wealth, and obfuscate, my view, the class and wealth divisions that exist in the United States. You know, there's a, this old line, you know, used to, have, you know, back to to, to Poli Sci days, is that Americans take every issue, uh, including issues of of class, wealth, and put it on the dimension of race, and that in Europe, uh, the Europeans take all these issues including issues of race and put it on the dimension of class right there's some truth to that i think i think it's been kind of obfuscated even more now so that the the cleavages the dimensions that we describe our tribe versus the other tribe are there's there's you know race is still a big part of that here in the united states but it's increasingly these other social dimensions right that have been created a narrative has been created around them because it allows for the 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 coalescence of a motivated base, right? That, again, obfuscates, my view, the real dividing issue, which is- I wealth. couldn't agree more. I think of it as two uh, trends. You have the
3: secular trend, right, uh, since the 60s, 70s, 80s of, you know, women coming into the workforce, uh, you know, a new immigration and, and African-Americans having more, uh, you know, uh, of a role in the economy. Um, that's secular, right? That's been happening. You know, we continue to advance, right? The, the You know, the bends towards justice, right? But you have this cyclical effect, right, which is probably even stronger during this 40-year period, which is monetary policy-driven, supply-side economics, where all the money is going to the top. And ultimately, the great... Uh, The people who have benefited the the least from this are white males, right? You know, and that cohort has been hurt by both, uh, by women coming to the workforce, uh, more kind of broad, different types of people in the workforce. But most importantly, they've been hurt by the inequality that's been driven by class. And I agree with you that, that during this period, we've been able to divert people's eyes from the class part and really shift it to... Um, the more secular trend. Meanwhile, African-American men are not doing any better than they really were 40 years ago. They're not doing worse maybe, but they're looking at, uh, you know, at one another and saying, hey, why are we still here? Where's the progress, right? Um, and so it's easy for both to point the fingers at each other and to rival up, rival up the, the lower classes against one another in, in that scenario. Um, so anyway, I couldn't agree with you more.
0: Well, you know, you used a phrase there, you know, you talked about, you know, bending towards justice. And obviously, that's part of the the, the longer quote by Martin Luther King Jr., where he said that the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And my response is, does it really? <laughs> I would like to believe it does. I would love to believe it does. And yet, I believe also that the arc, the story arc of the moral universe, I think it is beset on all sides by the tyrannies of evil men. <laughs> you know, the line from Pulp Fiction, supposedly a biblical quote, it's actually not, but it's okay. It's still a really good quote. And I, I think that the struggle of our lifetime, right, is to defend the arc of the moral universe. I think it is to see with clear eyes, the way in which the arc of the moral universe is being nudged and shifted in ways that are not going towards justice, but are going towards the political or economic advantage of the nudger. And then with full hearts to, uh, to, to, to resist that as individuals, right, from the bottom up, to, to, to maintain that sort of critical distance between our own hearts and what we are told is required to you know, be in our own self-interest. And I, I keep coming back to this a bit about being hardwired. And, and I, I think that, that recognizing that is seeing the water in which we swim. It's the sine qua non, right? If we can, just, if we can do that as individuals, then there's a chance. I think we got a shot at it right at at connecting it and and you know one of the 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 examples i like to use uh it's is actually the most popular thing we ever wrote on epsilon theory and it's 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 about it's called uh gelman amnesia and it comes from a a michael crichton speech story So, so michael crichton if you recall you know he wrote originally the andromeda strain and then he went he basically invented the the techno thriller right jurassic park all of all of those books those were you know, Westworld. These, these these are all Michael Crichton uh, books originally. So he got into uh, Hollywood, into movies, and uh, he was friends with lots of interesting people, one of whom was the physicist Murray gell who, you know, famously discovered or at least named the quark. So um, uh, Crichton was giving a speech one day. And he said, look, I'm talking about media. And he said, yeah, I, I what I'm really surprised about, I've decided to call it the Gelman Amnesia because of my friend Murray, yeah, you know, the, the the discoverer of quark. we were talking, and we 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 thought about this one day. But it's the 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 fact that we will read the newspaper, listen, you know, that was his example. this was like years ago, listen to a report on TV. And it will be about something we know a lot about right? For, you know, he said, I'm in Hollywood, so it'll I'll read an article about what's happening at this studio or what's happening with this movie, and I'll read it, and I know a lot about the subject, and I'll go, oh my God, this article is, they've got it completely wrong. They've got causality wrong. They've got their facts wrong. Oh my God, who can we call to get a, a retraction on this this misbegotten article that just got everything wrong? And Murray Gilmour, his friend, said, Oh, you know, I, I was reading an article, you know, in the It was about science. And I thought and I thought the same thing. Oh, my God, this is just, it's totally wrong. Everything about it's wrong. And then they both realized that, you know, when we turn the page and we read an article about something we know very little about, like, right, you know, Palestine. I know very little about Palestine. And I'll read the article and I'll go, Huh, that's interesting. Huh, I guess so. Huh, that's interesting. And I, I remember seeing the speech and I, you know, I, I, at the time, you know, I'd been, was working for a company that we'd had a Wall Street Journal article appear about, mention our company. And I remember thinking exactly that. We tried to get a retraction because it was just totally wrong. And everyone I've told this story to, this, this ever been a position where a, a, an article has been published about something they know a lot about, you know, a company they work for and stuff, they all in the same reaction. Oh yeah, it was just, it was a disaster. It was just totally wrong. We tried to get a retraction. And yet, for everything else we read, we turn the page and go, "Huh, yeah, that may kind of make sense." So this is what we're up against, right? And and, and it's and it's it's the, the the struggle, and it is a struggle because we're hardwired about this, is to recognize, maintain, like I'm saying, that critical distance, to recognize that the messages you hear, even on things you don't know a lot about, can be just as constructed and just as misleading as the the messages we hear where we do know something about. It's really hard, but that's the job.
2: Yeah, you mentioned um, the media. You mentioned uh, evil <laughs> men. I think was uh, a, a couple yeah. of words that came out. So I want to I want to throw something at you in a second. But I just want to say one small thing, a little comment about the hardwiring that you uh, yeah. you you keep referring to. Um, I remember eight years ago when I started the podcast. One of the things that I don't know where it came from, etc. But one of the things that we talked about back then was the reason why podcasting was likely to become very, very popular is the fact that we as humans are hardwired for stories, right? That's, you know, as babies, you know, parents start t- telling us stories. So so I completely uh, buy, buy into this uh, hardwiring. I think there's definitely... Uh, uh, something that is so easy to to see in just how we grow up. But let me try this thing about the evil men and the media because, and I don't know if I really have a question in here or, or just wanted to hear your thoughts on it, but... But but this is interesting because again, as I said in in, in 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 earlier, is that to me I feel that this sort of um, the power of the narrative is is kind of relatively new. At least uh, I feel it as 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 being relatively new uh, to some extent. As you said, it's probably maybe fifteen years ago where we really start seeing it. And then I heard an interview, and you may know this uh, author. He's called uh, Peter and I'm going to butcher this, but it's going to be Pomeratsev or something like that. He's a Soviet-born British journalist. I think, actually, he might be Ukrainian. Um, And he's written a couple of books. One is called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And the other one is It's Not Propaganda. I think Adventures in the War uh, Against Reality. And anyway, what he described in that interview was that the way Putin here's the evil men coming into the picture, the way Putin came to power was really by taking over the control of the media. And I imagine, therefore, controlling the narrative in the media. And I'm just thinking, is this something that has already played out and now it's kind of, now it's coming to the West and we obviously know what happened in, in Russia that didn't end so well in terms of how power got uh, centralized, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, is this something? And and now and and just to throw something in there, which I don't know if he, he even fits in there. But I see Elon <laughs> Musk has bought nine percent of Twitter, <laughs> uh, so so I'm just thinking: Is there? Do you see any of any of these things, or are you have you looked in you this? It's already at all? happened. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's, a, that's a that's my reaction. Right, so that's it, true. And, and it's, not, it's not necessary for it to take the autocratic form that it took in Russia, right? Because the context in which powerful interest accumulate power in russia right is going to be informed by their institutions their political institutions their economic institutions so all of that is going to shunt their political state the state right in a particular form which we see with putin my response to what you're saying is what what would give Mark Zuckerberg more power than he has now, right? I, I mean, when I say it's already happened, and, and again, I want to react to, you know, I don't want to say that they're evil in that capital E form, right? Sure. But the, the the system that exists now is one that creates an apotheosis of, of, of power in putin for it, it, meaning the pinnacle of power, for the Jeff bezos of the right. world. You know, Jeff Bezos gets the score. It's why he personally bought the Washington Post, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. Elon Musk gets right. the score, right? Hey, why is he why he's buying a piece of 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 Twitter, right? He's it's, it's why he's created his entire brand on creating a brand, right? And then that's 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 how you become an incredibly powerful person in that in that Western structure. So it's you know, my reaction, well, that's you you need to seize not the means of production, but the memes of production. Yeah. It's here too. <laughs> it's just it's just within a difficult a, a different context where we have you know the Trumps of the world and the Bidens of the world and the Musks of the world and the Zuckerbergs of the world instead of the Putins of the world.
2: So and you're right, and I know Jim. You want to say something on that, but actually, it just reminds me on something, and and I'm sure you uh, you uh, you know uh, Peter yeah. Malmgren well. I'm sure Ben, but 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 she said something a few years ago, which I thought was quite interesting. Before I think people started talking about it, she said Trump is not going to run. Well, he doesn't really want to be president because he's there's more power in owning me, a media platform. Whether that's, uh, but but she brought that up, and and I thought, hmm, okay, maybe. But I think now uh, it's pretty clear in terms of the power that these platforms give. Anyway, J M. No, I was yeah, no, I think that's very relevant. I, okay.
3: I do think you bring up a very interesting point here, Nils, um, and I, I'd love to explore it a little bit more. You know, just the trend towards autocracy, yeah. right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, the role of narrative, the role of technology. Um, Obviously, technology can play that role uh, for cooperation, like we talked about earlier, or competition. It seems to be bringing out uh, more of this competitive autocratic power game, right? Um, And we seem to be trending in that direction. Um, Do you think that is uh, irreversible? Uh, Why are we heading in that direction?
0: I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit about where you see. Yeah, well, this is what I mean by not being a mean reverting phenomenon. The the way I'd, I'd rather talk about it, I think we're moving more and more towards this what I like to call the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy, right? The the because our our, our system then allows for and there enormously positive and self fulfilling and non mean reverting advantages for oligarchy in our system. Anyway, so it's a long conversation, but but the the basic idea is is that political power accrues in our system to uh oligarchic or power of capital you know whether that's in speech political speech it allows you to buy a newspaper right it allows you to contribute to the uh, the messaging around specific political campaigns that are uh, amicable to your to to your goals the preservation of, of of your power and it all comes down to what the, the the currency today, the currency we spend and that we try to accumulate, and that can be spent for political power or for money, right? Is that currency of 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 narrative, right? Of of owning one of the megaphones that we voluntarily, again, I'm holding up my 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 dopamine machine, my smartphone, that we voluntarily allow to be broadcast at us 24-7. So it's it's not autocracy in the sense that someone is forcing us to listen to the message, right? We do it willingly. Right? And that's why I think actually the Western system is so much more robust and stable than, say, an an autocratic system, certainly in Russia or even in, in, in China. I, I think the Western system is much more stable, not necessarily more beneficial for you know our autonomy of mind, but I think that the nudge is so much more um, robust than the the boot, right? Than than the point of the gun. But whether
3: it's autocracy with a
0: lower case yeah, a, like, yeah, 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 but good, I, you good. know, like you're
3: talking about yeah. so with, or autocracy with a capital yep. A. I think they're both on the rise, though, right? Oh, without a doubt. I think you know, yeah, and and I think that's been a, a secular trend now. For at least uh, twenty years, but really, kind of. I mean, you know what uh, bugs me though, longer. Jim, is, is that
0: we, like so I say, we give it away. We give it. We give it away, and 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 what it is, I think, is is our autonomy of mind, and that's what I think we have to try to reclaim. Uh, it's 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 not a political statement. It's a human statement to reclaim our autonomy of mind.
3: I, I don't want to sound fatalistic, but but I mean. We live in a competitive world, right? Survival of the fittest is the natural state of things. Um, and I wonder, you know, if the Western liberal democracy, quote unquote, experiment, right, is really just that, you know, our our founding fathers created a elaborate structure, right, of checks and balances because they knew, uh, you know, as a republic, if you can keep it, right? Um, and, uh, and I fear that, you know, the entropy of, of of all things you know we're seeing that here in our in our across both uh, you know the power of uh, you know money uh, the power of politics yeah. all of this is now really um you know the cracks have have widened to a point where where it's a gusher and and it's and it's hard for us to put rules in place to govern the nudging state or in uh, any other uh type of power so again i I want to bring a more positive tone but how do we how do we um, fight back against these kind of lowercase autocratic things here locally and more broadly against autocracy, capital A, uh, worldwide?
0: We do it, uh, you know, locally sounds small. We do it We do it from the bottom up. And we do it first by recognizing, by, you know, seeing is believing. So first is recognizing the water in which we swim. Uh, the technology that is around allows us to defend ourselves in the same way that it allows these missionaries to try to corrupt us, and I mean that sincerely, right? Through their transactional and their tribal narratives, the fact that you guys can do this podcast, pretty freaking amazing, right? The fact that I've been writing epsilon theory, right, started eight years ago, right? Just do my own, you know, we got a couple hundred thousand people now to read this stuff, and you know, all word of mouth. It's there. There's not. There's no barrier here, right? There, 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 there are no gatekeepers for people. For truth seekers to find each other out and to engage with each other with clear eyes and full hearts, because, you know, that's one of the old stories too, uh, you know,
3: do what our founding fathers yeah, did. Right? No,
0: it's, that's that's exactly same. right. That's exactly right. And, and it seems, it seems small. Uh, you know, I talked to a lot of people and, and it seems small and, and I, you know, I try a lot to see a lot of people all over the world and others without exception they're they're doing, you know, good deeds in their personal lives you know they're helping their neighbors uh, they're working to to try to give their families a better life right they're working for their pack their friends they treat other people as autonomous human beings and not as a means to an end and also without exception they think it's that that's nothing that that, that that's that's small that that what's important is to you know rally for some mighty cause and you know do this march or that march and, you know, follow the banner of, you know, some corporation or some political party. And say, no, no, it's not, it's not small. It's not nothing. It's everything. It's everything, right? And this doesn't get solved by forming a new political party, right? You're not going to reform the groups that are. It has to come from civil society. It has to come from below. And it's going to take a hell of a long time. But while you are engaged in it, it is a, it is a life worth living, and it is it – is, uh, I, I, I think that is what prevails in the end, not because it's reality, but because it's, it is a better story. It's a story that gives your own life meaning, and then once you discover it, that's your equilibrium, <laughs> right? It's very stable. It is. So that's why you say, you know, you, you, find your pack, you find, you find other like-minded people who you can disagree vehemently with on politics and economic, anything else, but you treat them as an autonomous human being, right? That their, that their opinion is, is worth something. You don't treat them as a, as a tool, as a means to an end. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's, you know, your friends, maybe it's a larger, but you find those people and, that's how we want. That's how we make our way in a in a broken world. That's look. The world's always been broken, <laughs> but uh, but that's that's the secret, right? You you find those people.
3: You know, and speaking of community, um, you know, there's a growing kind of millennial on down community that is really has at its core. I'm going to shift gears a little bit here, but currency, right, fiat and crypto at its core, and um, you know, linguistic narrative is is uh, is an important probably you know the narrative we're the the lever we're most talking about here from the nudging state and vehicle for change as well, but um, you know, fiat mon, fiat money is probably the most powerful tool in the nudging state's toolbox, right. Um, And, you know, in this context, what do you see as crypto as well as blockchains, you know, general ledgers role in the coming decades? Uh, You know, it could in theory be the thing that liberates, you know, masses from kind of inserts a a bit of fairness, right? Um, you know, what are your views on crypto? And then, uh, you know, how do you see it, uh, potentially freeing some of us from, you know, the nudging power of the state and recapturing some of that
0: power? i think that the the state exists for uh creating money that's that's the reason that the state exists and so that if you play on that field if you make war on that battlefield of money uh, you will lose and what i lose what i mean by lose is not that you know bitcoin gets banned or something like that no it's it you become co-opted caesar takes what is rendered to caesar and that realm of money because of its existential importance to the state right, will be co-opted and monitored and controlled by the state and it's you know already happening today it's 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 the difference between bitcoin and the way that it's turned into just another table at the wall street casino so when you have the two most powerful nudgers in the world, the United States government and Wall Street, both focus not on banning Bitcoin, right, but on neutering Bitcoin to turning it into another instrument of the nudging oligarchy and the nudging state, That that's I think it is incontrovertible that is where we are going. I'll go further and say that's where we are. It's done. It's done, right so it's, all, it's, all, it's and and that makes me um it makes me sad because there is I have no better word for it, but an entrepreneurial energy, an energy of autonomy within the broader crypto community, which is the most important thing that's happening in the world today. And the frustration I feel. Is that so long as those that energy and that autonomy is focused on the realm of money, that it will end up as almost all financial innovation has ever done in strengthening the state, not in weakening it. Yeah, I,
3: you know, crypto is society's purest expression of its desire to wrest control right, uh, from from the powers that uh, be and regain kind of a sense of truth and fairness. And I kind of shared your cynical view for for quite yeah. some time. I hate to call it cynical, but it is, right? I'm more recently, again, trying to think about um, kind of at the end of the day, if that generation, this has become the religion and, and there's a network effect of people who are um, in a populism that's unwilling to to let go, right, of this this fairness, right? And it's so important to them. Even though I agree with you, historically, uh, money has always been, has needed a sponsor, right? I I wonder if the populace, right, could become the sponsor, right? This sheer populism, and and because the zeitgeist has become uh, so fervent, and particularly upon a generation that is now growing into power in the years to come, um, if it might end up being the tool ultimately that does move us away from autocracy that allows um you know and, and it may end up hurting the west and america you know because it loses its exorbitant privilege yep. right in some ways yep. but um i do wonder if that the new center of freedom or um you know free will uh, ends up having at its core this this crypto you know, the acceptance of crypto or, or non-fiat currency. I, I find it very interesting. It's something that- God, I hope you're I right. Is, uh, I hope you're uh, right, Jim. Yeah. And,
0: and, you know, it's, it's absolutely right that, that all, all um, religions are syncretic, right? They, they, they synthesize what came before. And so if, if what you're saying is that, uh, and I think that's what you're saying, that there can be a synthesis of the, the essence of, you know, that, that crypto identity with small L liberalism, and that that can synthesize into something that's modern but preserves those those elements. Kind of hope you're right. Now I'm going to say and, not but, but. I'm going to say and, right? Because you know and is such a much better word than but. And I think that what we are experiencing today is is similar to uh, let's call it kind of the the. Late '80s, early '90s, around the internet. where we're we're actually building the protocols uh, for like HTTP for the internet. We're doing that today, and and I, and I hate to make it small by calling it Web three or something like that. But what I what I really mean is, what are the protocols on which we're going to build our societal uh, pipes and networking for the next fifty years? And and I think we are at that stage where we're we're able to build protocols. And my concern is that the protocols as they are being built are focused on what I'd call the speculation layer, a monetizable and inherently monetary aspect of an underlying protocol for human behavior. And that anything that is built in that speculation layer, any of these protocols are sponsored by billionaires. Right. So yeah. so we're going to end up with the billionaires protocol for this synthesis, this syncretic, you know, faith that I, I agree with you. I think could could be coming out going forward. What is required, right, for for the vision you just laid out, I think to come to pass in a in a in a positive way for humanity. And I really mean this for humanity, right, is not the billionaire's protocol, but is our protocol. And I think that's possible, but organizing that, right, or or, or, or finding a way to, to, to get that traction is going to require, again, a recognition of the water in which we swim and the way in which, getting back to our original class, the oligarchs, the billionaires, right, are really good at weaponizing these narratives for their own interests, in this case, for creating a protocol that serves their interests before our interests.
3: I'm hopeful only because it's a general ledger, Mm -hmm. right? So um, it is, at at its core, it is not corrupt, right? At its core, it is not nudging. Um, And as long as we don't rest those ideals, right, um, it might have
0: long-term positive... I get it. And I, and I share that faith. There's no other word for it. No. What you're describing is right. a faith. right? And, and I share that faith. And what I'm saying is that if the faith is focused on the speculation layer, as opposed to a protocol that can drive making, protecting, teaching, I am confident that all of this will be, in fact, as it so often is in history, subverted by the oligarchs, right? Yeah, you know, this goes back to freaking, you know, Peloponnesian War. I started talking about Socrates early and and, and Sophists. I mean, the Sophists won. <laughs>
3: it, it goes, the Sophists it goes and the back oligarchs to,
0: <laughs> won. Yeah, we just have to avoid that.
3: It goes back to animals. I mean, this is competition and
2: yeah, pure soil. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I I know we don't have you uh an infinite amount of time then, which is a, a shame because we, <laughs> we really could, could go on. I want to see if I can squeeze in one more small little topic because I think it's uh, so important and 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 um and I think it's also quite relevant uh now that we talk about kind of the the future to to kind of wrap it all to uh, to an end. Um you wrote a piece uh I think it's about 2 years ago or something like that called lack of imagination. And that's really something that resonated with me. And to to spin it into kind of modern world, my own world, the, the quant world, um, when I talk to investors, I think we've all been conditioned by this quote-unquote carry regime we've been in for the last 20 years. And I say to people, I don't think you can imagine what markets can do. I mean, I've been doing this for, you know, since the mid-80s. I've seen a few more moves than what we've seen in the last 20 years. And and, you know, we need to ensure that we have, you know, I, I guess if anyone asked 18 months ago if they could see oil trading between minus 37 and plus 130, they probably wouldn't have called that one, right? So, so, so I'm interested in this point about lack of imagination uh, and also these kind of blind spots I think you talked about. And I'm just curious to know whether they're, you know, what are your thoughts are on that topic today, given where we are? You know the i
0: think the most the, the 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 most influential philosopher of the 20th century ludwig you know wittgenstein you know he said you know my 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 words are my universe and way there's a lot he meant by that but to put it to your question niels if we don't have the words for something we don't have the thoughts and that's why it's so important for everything we've been discussing for the nudgers to try to control our words and to, to weaponize the words we use because In the absence of having the words, we can't have the thoughts. And by the same token, if you have certain words that are always in your head, you're going to have thoughts around those words. It's never been more important for there to be, it's like your podcast, right? Or about like the stuff we write, or or there's so many other sources of this. For people to provide the words to try to spark new thoughts, right? I'll say to think differently. It's never been more important to think differently. And yet it's never been more difficult because we are, again, immersed, inundated with messages that are giving us a prescribed and proscribed set of words to try to make sure we think in a certain way. So, you know, big picture, it's, it's. I get all metaphysical with this stuff, right? So it's, 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 it's never been more important. Not just to 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 read but to think about you know why am i reading this now to actively seek out other views opinions to 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 read not just as a leaning back but as a lean forward as an active participant in a in a in a in a a critical participant all of us have had our brains, I really believe, kind of hardened and aged a lot more than 10 years over the past 10 years. And so what's so important is for us to make these kind of new connections. And there's no magic formula for it, except to keep pushing yourself to do it, to push, to, to break these old habits that, that we've developed over the last 10 years. And we can. We can, we can start seeing the water in which we swim. And we can start thinking differently, thinking new, trying to make new connections. That's how we will get out of this as a society. That's how we will succeed as individuals, you know in in, in markets and the like. It is it is to think um, to think differently. It's, it's, it's the best advice I've got. I know it's kind of unsatisfying because it's not saying, oh, do X, Y, Z. But because I don't have an answer with a capital A, what I do have, I think, is a process. And that's always more important than the answer, right? What's the process? And the process is to allow yourself to think differently, to maintain that critical distance between the messages that you hear from your financial advisor, from you know this analyst or from the CEO, and allow yourself the freedom, the autonomy of mind, to think for yourself and it's a uh, it's weird right? because it's it's not easy and it's two steps forward and it's one step back but man that's what we need a lot
2: more of these days not less ben thank you so so much for spending some of your time with us oh it's my pleasure this is a blast man let's do it again yeah, no, absolutely. We, we will for sure, and, and we certainly really appreciate this, as I'm sure all our listeners uh, will do. And by the way, make sure you follow and subscribe to Ben's work over at Epson Theory. We will, of course, link to all of this in the show notes. As you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a true global macro-driven right. world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jim and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Series. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.